Well, with a song like that, it reminds us probably of the beginning of Revelation 21. Let me read it and we'll pray. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. To look upon the one who bled to save me, and walk with him for all eternity. Lord Jesus, that is our hope, to look upon you and to walk with you for all eternity. There will be a day when death will be no more, standing face to face with he who died and rose again. We praise you for the glory that you have amassed for yourself, and we look forward to be, being just enamored with that for all of eternity. In every prayer we prayed in despair, desperation, the songs of faith we sang through doubt and fear, in the end, we'll see that it was worth it. Lord Jesus, we do look forward with this kind of hope that we just sang about, and we know that serving you is definitely worth our whole life. And on that day, we join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith with one voice, a thousand generations, saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And we look forward to that day to be with the church, with our people, with Christ's own. And we pray that you would continue to strengthen us, that you would raise our hopes and our hearts to sing for and to long for heaven and all of its glory. And we pray this morning that you would teach us more today from the Gospel of Luke about a faith that obtains this eternal life. And we pray these things for your sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're talking about the rich young ruler this morning. So it's in Luke chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to starting in verse 18, but I've also printed it for you in your bulletin, so you can follow along if you'd like there. But it's, this is a hard story for a lot of people to listen to, and that's simply because we know that we live in a society that's really filled with rich young rulers, or at least people who would like to be rich young rulers. I mean, these People are people that assume that they're just acceptable in God's sight and that God thinks as highly of them as they do of themselves. People who are proud of their good works and believe that their good works are going to help them get on to eternal life. People who fail to recognize that they actually have to be converted in their soul, and that's only possible by the grace of God. People who value the treasures of earth monetary and otherwise, more than the treasures of heaven. So it describes many in our society today, and some of these are people who are more satisfied in themselves and in their possessions, and really self-righteous when it comes to their future and eternity. 
But we should also not forget that, as in our story that we'll read in a moment, that many of these people are not opposed to Christianity. In fact, many of them actually believe the basic doctrines of Christianity and act quite Christianly at times. These people are quite frequently in church and even active in church. They may be admired as a good Christian or even a great Christian by many of their friends. They're pious sometimes, interested in spiritual things, kind people, helpful people, sometimes leaders, sometimes very generous people. Well, Jesus in our story saw through the rich young ruler, and he sees through all of his contemporary counterparts as well. And Jesus reveals the truth that this man and people that are like him are really not part of the people of God because they need conversion. And so like with the disciples, we'll wonder then, well, how can anyone be saved if it seems like such a righteous, blessed, and believing man is not saved like this rich young ruler because we know so many people like him? Well, the lesson, of course, is very simple, that we have to beware of relying on the wrong source for salvation, ourselves. So please turn your Bibles to Luke 18, and we're going to learn what Jesus would say to those of us who live in a society of rich young rulers, a topic that's very important about a faith that actually saves. And we'll read the story as we go through it. Now this episode in Luke 18 is also paralleled in two other Gospels, in Mark chapter 10 and in Matthew 19. And all three of the Gospel writers tell the same story in a slightly different way to emphasize what they want to put forth in their gospel accounts. And obviously, the conversation with this man was much larger than what's recorded. But all three gospel writers record this memorable event because of its significance and its very clear teaching on salvation. The kind of faith that inherits eternal life is a dependent faith. Now, it's really important to realize where this story comes in the Gospel of Luke. Do you remember what's right before it? If you were here last week, it's the story about how we have to have faith like children if we want to enter the kingdom of God. And so, for example, if you just look back to verse 17, it says, Jesus said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You see what Luke's doing? He's giving you the exact opposite as an illustration with this rich, young ruler. He has a self-reliant faith, not a faith like children. The rich, young ruler lacks the simple trust, dependency, and obedience, and seeking after understanding. And so Luke records now for us two of Jesus' conversations, one where he preaches the gospel to the rich young ruler in verses 18 to 23, and we'll learn that salvation comes through a faith that really needs God. And then his disciples are listening in, and so he teaches them in verses 24 to 30 that salvation is ultimately by God's grace, and then it's going to come rich with benefits in our life. In the larger outline of Luke, Luke's going to be presenting a series of stories, parable even, on the nature of true faith before he begins to narrate the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's on purpose. And we've already looked at the Pharisee and the tax collector, the parable there. We looked at the children illustration, and from those that we learned the qualities of acceptable faith. Well, today we're going to learn from 
this story about the rich young ruler and then Bartimaeus and then Zacchaeus, all famous stories, and yet another parable. And all of these teach different lessons about faith. But today we're going to learn about faith that obtains eternal life. And that kind of faith is a faith that is a dependent faith. And so the first lesson is about the salvation that comes from a faith that really, really needs God. And so there are two exchanges with this rich young ruler. There's the first exchange in verses 18 to 20, and then there's this pause, if you will, in the conversation. And verses 21 to 23, we see the second part of the conversation with the rich young ruler. So it begins, and a ruler asked him, Jesus, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. So we have this young man, wealthy man, some type of a ruler it seems, and he kneels before Jesus to ask about salvation. And he could be a ruler of the synagogue or ruler maybe in the Sanhedrin, but most likely he's a civic leader, a pious layman. And he opens with a very flattering comment and calls Jesus good teacher, and then asks about what kind of work of super irrigation he could do to secure eternal life. Or perhaps he just certainly wants to make sure that he didn't miss something that would secure his standing. So Jesus begins his response by commenting on his word, good, since obviously this man doesn't understand the word. And so he's pointing the man to God for a definition of goodness. Now Jesus is, of course, here not denying his own goodness and his deity, but you see, this man only sees Jesus as just a man. But only God is purely good. No man is good or can be. And yet, it's this level of goodness, like God, that's required for anyone who would live with God eternally. And since he's assessing Jesus as just a man, some people think that maybe Jesus is asking him here to acknowledge him as God as well, but it's probably too subtle for this conversation. But see, the episode opens this way because this is the point of the whole story. Understanding the nature and requirement of true goodness is the heart of this man's problem. This wealthy young man thinks of himself as good. He thinks of himself as good enough for God. Do you know such people like that who think they're good? Think they're good enough for God? Well, Jesus then proceeds to pick out five of the six commandments that are in the second half of the Decalogue. So Decalogue's fancy way to refer to the Ten Commandments. So the first four is man's relationship to God. The last six is our relationship to one another. And there are six there. Now he'll get to all six, but he begins with five. Number seven, number six, number eight, number nine, and number five. And he just lists them out. I mean, this is one way to define goodness. You just look at the Ten Commandments. And that reflects God's very goodness. So true conformity, though, is much more than social standards of compliance to these, or just outward compliance, but ultimately it requires an actual mirroring of God's goodness and keeping them, not just externally, but keeping them internally. You remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? 
he had a lot to say in commenting on what these Ten Commandments really mean. We have to keep them internally. We have to keep them thoroughly. We have to keep them without ever missing them. Well, certainly no man can do that, but that doesn't change God's requirement. It's not based upon who's the best among us. The answer, of course, is that Jesus kept them perfectly, perfectly for us who would believe in him. He died for our unrighteousness and would give us his own righteousness and then give us his Holy Spirit so that we could live out the requirements in grace and in growth. But Jesus' simple point is that those who have a proper relationship with God, those people who will inherit eternal life, are the ones who also live properly among the fellow man, understanding that their need for goodness doesn't come from within themselves, but it's going to have to come from outside of themselves. So we as the readers of Luke's gospel must not overlook the fact that Jesus here upholds the law and its definition of goodness. And he actually begins this discussion about eternal life from the demands of the law. Have you ever considered this as a strategy for confronting those self-righteous persons that you run into? Who reason like this, oh, you've heard it a hundred times if you've heard it once, oh, I've never murdered anyone. Yeah, I'm as good as the next person, maybe even better. They usually leave that off, but that's what they really think. Well, have an evangelistic conversation sometime with people about works and see where it goes. It proves most interesting. In fact, I was thinking about this this week, and I recalled that, uh, I can't remember the exact setting, but I think it was somewhere in East Asia. Could have been in a coffee shop at two in the morning, or it could have been just some guy in a park bench, but he was a pretty self-righteous guy. He thought he was pretty good. And so I figured, well, I'll try this. I'll try this, this tactic Jesus is using and see how it goes. And so um, I said, well, you sound like a really good man, so let's, let's talk about our goodness, and let's see who's actually better than the other person and is good in God's eyes. What do you think about that? And, of course, he didn't know what to think about that. So I said, well, it's okay. I'll, I'll start. I'll tell you about how good I am first. And so he was really interested in that. So because he thought I was actually a pretty good person, yeah, I had him fooled. And so I started to go through the Ten Commandments and talk about what this would actually mean in outward conformity, but then started to talk about, well, internally, though, you know, I don't, I can't keep this. And I could recount different parts of my life where I broke the commandments. It shows that I'm really not a thoroughgoing righteous person. So I went through all ten of them uh, pretty quickly. But by the time we got done with that, he was sort of astounded, and I said, well, okay, now it's your turn. And then he realized, well, maybe he's not as good as he thinks he is. And so that opened up an opportunity then to say, well, let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, you see, is not offering this man that he's going to be somehow saved by his works by telling him to keep his commandments, these commandments. They go together, and Jesus' point is if the man would truly keep the commandments in a manner that really pleased God, it would actually reveal indeed that he had received grace and possess a true faith because, you see, it's impossible otherwise. That's the whole point. And so the hope here is that this man would realize that, that it's impossible he has not truly kept the law. He doesn't truly possess the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about. So Jesus, you see in this storyline so far, he's actually very compassionate with this man. I mean, he's direct to the point, 
to what this man is really struggling with because he thinks he can get saved by works. But we find out in the story that this man is actually spiritually quite dense. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get the story, what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus is calling this man and all moral people to a true and thorough righteousness that's worked by grace. He desires that people recognize their inability to keep the law perfectly and their lack of goodness. He desires that people would see that a self-generated morality is insufficient to get into the kingdom. I mean, all through our passage today, what we're going to be seeing is that Jesus is setting people up for the next part of the conversation. That's how Jesus often would talk to people as we read in the Gospels. He gives partial answers to questions and leaves people asking for more. And then he gives them the rest of the story. And so we get to the second exchange after Jesus just sort of lays it out there. And then in verse 21 to 23, we have the second exchange. And he said, well, that is the rich young ruler, all those I've kept for my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, well, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. So this uh, young man uh, says that he's kept all these commandments since his youth. Oh, that's amazing. Never met anybody like that. But that's quite a claim. It's obvious that he doesn't understand the depth of the claim or what God's claim on him is. He's not satisfied with Jesus' answer and likely wants to know more what Jesus has to say. Wasn't it interesting when you consider this character, the story, the two things are happening simultaneously. I mean, he's both convinced that he's blameless and he's unsure of what his real standing before God is. Isn't that interesting? This is the same position that so many self-proclaimed Christians today are in, where they're these outwardly good moral people, they think. But yet, and they're convinced of that, but they're not sure whether or not they're going to get into the kingdom. They're blind to the truths of true righteousness and the need of God's supernatural grace, but you know, true Christianity goes far beyond and much deeper than just a professed faith and, and some kind of a simple, surfacey observance of things. This is what we call cultural Christians or nominal Christians. Maybe you know some. Maybe you're here today or listening online, and that's you, and you want to get out of this predicament. Well, Jesus finally answers the man without really commenting on his lack of understanding. And so, you notice, I already told you, he's already picked out five of the six commandments on the second table of the Decalogue. Well, now Jesus goes in with the 10th commandment, which is do not covet, by the way. And so he tells him, well, if you want treasure in heaven, if you want eternal life, well, then you should keep the 10th commandment. Jesus conveniently saved this for the end of this dialogue because, you see, this is the man's big problem. It's covetousness. In the book of James, it says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. And so Jesus tells him, sell everything. Give it to the poor and follow me. You see, discipleship, of course, is about absolute allegiance to Jesus, and money has got this man's heart at this point in his life. 
And you think about it, if you, if you sort of cheat and read ahead in the Gospel of Luke and you turn over to Luke chapter 19, you run into this other rich guy. His name is Zacchaeus. Well, he only had to give away half in that story. So the rich young ruler must be a really bad guy because Jesus says he has to give away 100%. Zacchaeus only had to do 50%. But we'll get there. So Jesus tailored, you see, this gospel presentation to just this man to offer him an answer to the question that he asked, which is really, how do I get eternal life? And to call him into true discipleship and to be a true member of the kingdom of God and the people of God. It's a better, it's a great, it's a great treasure worth it. And Jesus taught in Luke 14 that no one of you can be my disciple who doesn't give up all his possessions. And he means that he must be first, and our possessions have to be a distant second in our discipleship. True Christian discipleship involves a radical self-denial and actually being obedient and wildly generous. But you see, verse 22 should not be difficult to understand at all when Jesus says this to him, because he's making this point again that the level of goodness that's required by God, you cannot attain it. So that's why Jesus says to him, we'll give away 100%. And he leaves saddened because he has so much wealth when what he should have done is cried out to Jesus, I can't do that. I can't give away everything right now. That's what he should have said. Then we would know he understands what Jesus is talking about. Obviously, he has no clue what he's talking about. He doesn't even want to discuss the matter anymore. So maybe the lesson is starting to sink in. So he leaves without eternal life, but hopefully upon reflection, a better understanding of goodness, maybe one day salvation will come to this man. But in Luke 16, Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and man, or God and wealth. You see, Jesus knows this man's heart and what it loves. The rich young ruler has a divided heart. It's a heart that ultimately values his own worldly wealth more than heavenly treasure that Jesus offers. And so in verse 23, we learn that he's, he's willing, he's only willing, to keep up the religious externals that he's been doing. In fact, you could say he started this whole conversation with Jesus to justify himself and his own theology and his own righteousness and his own goodness. He didn't come to learn anything from Jesus. So he wants to keep his treasures. He's grieved, though, because he didn't satisfy Jesus and he didn't leave satisfied. He loves his treasures, even though they're standing in the way of his eternal life. You see, salvation comes through the kind of faith that really, really needs God. The rich young ruler didn't have that kind of faith. Salvation doesn't come by independent self-determination and a self-reliant faith. It comes through a dependent faith. Remember the child in verses 15 through 17. That's the kind of faith that inherits eternal life. Well, the second lesson about salvation is that it's ultimately by God's grace, and it comes rich with benefits. And so now Jesus builds on this conversation with the disciples who are listening in on this whole thing. They're watching, listening, and now Luke records three topics that Jesus covers with them. The first is the problem of wealth in verses 24 to 25, and then that salvation is by grace alone in 26 and 27, and finally that there is a reward for disciples at the end. So the three topics are the problem of wealth, salvation is by grace alone, and that there's a great reward for true disciples. 
And so the storyline continues. Jesus, seeing they become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus, uh, looking at this man and having his disciples around him, drives the point home. Worldly wealth is one of the greatest stumbling blocks to salvation. That's because the benefits of salvation don't naturally appear to be worth the exchange. One might even wonder if the kingdom's really worth such a radical lifestyle and if there isn't an easier way to really sort of do both. In fact, many people try to come up with those pathways, but it's false. You know, it's even difficult, more difficult, comparatively speaking, for the wealthy to be saved because wealth, or even just being okay in life and having your needs met, it tends to produce an unhealthy sense of self-sufficiency, an unhealthy sense of self-reliance, and even self-righteousness. And so people have to be able to look through the deceit of wealth and all of its false promises of security because, you see, wealth has a religious effect in our lives. And that religious effect is the transference of these attitudes of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness before God. So hopefully we can all see the point Jesus is making. And then there's this illustration of the camel, who's one of the largest animals in the area at the time, passing through the eye of a needle, which is one of the smallest openings, clarifies salvation is impossible. It's a very, very simple illustration that he uses here. With the conventional illustration, Jesus even goes beyond talking about the wealthy. He's really talking about everybody, as we'll see in a moment. Because you see, the society at the time viewed the pious wealthy, the religious wealthy, as the most likely candidates to actually enter the kingdom of God. Because they're obviously doing good works. They have enough money to do good works. It seems like God is blessing them. Um, they're leaders in our community. So that's proof that those people are saved, you see. God has blessed them so richly. But as we'll see in a moment, that's not true. But then uh, we need to correct a century-old idea here. It's still popular today. It was, first came out in the Middle Ages, but it's incorrect. And so that is that Jesus is here somehow referring to a needle gate in the walled city of Jerusalem that the camel could be made to go through if he unloaded and scrunched down and crawled through on his knees. But there's no evidence that there was a such thing as the needle gate in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus would be referring to. You might have even heard of this crazy idea. Not only is it unlikely in reality, but worse yet, it ruins the whole expression. Jesus' point is not that it's just really hard for rich people to get into heaven. It's that it's impossible. Absolutely impossible to get in. You see, the rich naturally think that they could do almost anything to get in. In fact, they would love this illustration because they might be able to squeeze into heaven if they tried hard enough. That's not Jesus' point. He's pretty simple. It's impossible. You see, salvation is by grace alone. So that's why the disciples say, well, who can be saved then? But he said, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. You see, this is another setup 
Jesus in his conversation, verses 24 and 25, he set that whole thing up so his disciples would just keep asking questions, make them think harder. You see, because the Jews considered that the wealth of the pious was part of God's divine favor, and their success would allow them to complete certain religious duties, and they would get great rewards in the kingdom. Sort of like people, if you have had the opportunity to travel to different mission fields around the world, so many people around the world, first of all, they think all Americans are Christians, but then they think that we're the best specimens of Christianity because God has given us so much wealth. I hope that makes you sick to your stomach. You see, practically speaking, more poor people are going to be saved than rich people. It's observable today. You just simply look at the facts. The people that are getting saved are the people in the majority world. That's where Christianity is expanding the most, not around here. Tons of people are being saved in the majority world, and that's why we refer to it as the majority church. But Jesus is teaching his disciples not only, not only the difficulty of the rich being saved, but the absolute necessity of grace for anyone and everyone to be saved, rich or poor. We must not miss this, that Jesus says it's impossible for the rich and pious to be saved. And so you see his argument. His argument is, if it's the most likely people, when you look around and you think, oh, that person is saved, and then Jesus comes along and says, they're not. Then you look at yourself, which you thought were lesser than the person you were thinking would be, well, then obviously you're not in. So in context, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. It's impossible for anyone to be saved. The only hope given by here is that by God's sovereign power, by his grace, he can save anyone he wants to, rich or poor. And he does. God's grace, when he chooses to favor people with salvation, overcomes the proud heart of the rich. It overcomes the proud heart of the poor. It overcomes whatever sin they have. God doesn't save on the basis of money or works or the lack of money or the lack of works, but by his mere grace and mercy. In Romans 9, he says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. And so the apostle writes, so then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. The Apostle Paul writes later in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. You see, the bottom line here is this. Do we know and sense in our soul that our own salvation was impossible, that we could never save ourselves? Do we know and sense in our soul that God himself saved us by his own powerful grace acting upon us? That's the kind of faith that inherits eternal life, one that's dependent and understands it and recognizes it. And then we get to the third topic, a disciple's reward. And Peter said, look, we've left our homes, 
and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You see, Peter, one of the most astute of the apostles, looks around and he realizes that, hey, Jesus just asked this rich guy to give away 100%. Well, maybe we didn't give away 100%, but it's pretty close. And so, you know, if you remember back in Luke 5, when Jesus is calling them, he said to Simon Peter, do not fear from now on, you'll be catching men. And when they brought their nets to land, they left everything and followed him. So, you know, Peter remembers all this. And he wants affirmation from Jesus that they're going to enter the kingdom and maybe that it's worth it, especially after this startling conversation with the rich young ruler. So what about us? And so Jesus tells him, and Luke tells us, God will reward those who sacrifice with great blessing. Sacrificing what might be considered part of normal living, normal worldly living in order to spread the gospel, it's going to bring you great blessing from God. So keep it up, everyone. There are many, many applications of this text. So we might think initially of the apostles. I mean, they gave up everything, literally, it seems, to spread the gospel. We might think of modern-day missionaries. But we can also think of others who sacrifice. We sacrifice resources and time all the time. I hope we do. To spread the fame of Jesus, to spread the gospel to people, to advance the kingdom. You see, when Jesus talks about leaving home and household and family, he's not advocating abandoning some type of God-given responsibilities. So don't be startled by his way he talks. And worse yet, don't be inspired to irresponsibility and unhealthiness. I mean, Jesus might be referring to selling everything and packing up and heading out to the field for the rest of your life, for you. He might be referring to items such as staying single or traveling without one's family for a while, as we saw how the early church spread. Jesus might even be referring to being abandoned and coming from the other side where your family abandons you and disowns you because of your faith. But our encouragement this morning is going to come from focusing on the words of Jesus at the very end here. We must realize and set our heart to meditate that we get more than we give up as Christians. Do you believe this? Have you seen that you've gotten more than you've had to give away? We get a larger and happier family in the church of God in Christ Jesus right now. In fact, some of us come from pretty dysfunctional families that we'd rather hang out with the church all the time. And then we're going to experience the greatest and purest and happiest of relationships in the kingdom of God for all of eternity, like we sang in that song. And we get far greater treasures now because we get to live our lives with confidence, not fear, watching God meet all of our needs. It's amazing. Other people can't see those types of things. And then when we get to the kingdom of God, it's going to be full with more wealth than we can ever imagine, and eternal life with Jesus. So this present life in the kingdom is a blessed life, and then it's going to be best of all when we inherit eternal life. So keep reminding yourself of that. Salvation is ultimately by God's grace, and it comes with rich benefits. I hope that we at Calvary Church are constantly growing and being strengthened with this understanding that our sacrifices will be blessed, that our suffering is worth it, that our living on mission and life together is the fullest life we could live. You know, Hudson Taylor is a pioneer missionary to China. 
He said that he never succeeded once in making a sacrifice for the kingdom. And you think, what kind of guy, what is he talking about? And the reason he said that, he says, because he's always found so much more blessing afterwards. See, Luke is presenting here a series of teachings on true faith as he begins, before he narrates the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that's on purpose, so that we understand who we're supposed to put our faith in. Because faith is not just some nebulous concept, that like somehow I have faith. You have to have faith in something, faith in a person. And so he's setting us all up that we will have faith in Jesus Christ, in who he is as his person, that he's the eternal son of God who's become man, fully God, fully man. It's to be a faith that's placed in his work that he would do, why he came when he offered himself on the cross and then was raised from the dead for our redemption. So last session, we learned that true faith is humble before God and people, and it trusts in Jesus completely. Now today we learn that the kind of faith that inherits eternal life is a dependent faith. You know, Jesus is so direct and so personal in this story, and it applies so well to us who live in the society that we live in. I mean, shockingly, many you know, Christians, so-called, confuse and substitute the American dream for hope of the kingdom of God, whatever their American dream is. Everybody has their own version of it, it seems. But shockingly, many so-called Christians confuse the two. And many people think that they're Christians and devoted to God, but they're really only like this guy in the story, culturally. That is, they do what's sort of expected in the Christian community. They do what's respected in the Christian community. They're nominal Christians. That means in name only. They're good moral people. They believe the doctrines. They believe God. They're churchgoers. They are doing relatively well in life. But it's especially this last piece that really misleads them, doing well, getting ahead in life, fulfilling their dream. People tend to take the aspect of material well-being as a sign, a confirmation, an approbation from God that they're His. And so we have many rich young rulers walking around, self-deceived about their identity and their destiny. Again, the kind of faith that inherits eternal life is a dependent faith, not an independent, not a self-made kind of faith. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul from Philippians 3. This is in great contrast to the rich young ruler where he wrote, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And in conformity to what we learned from the disciples this morning, 
In our story in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And although you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let me pray for us. Well, Lord God, we thank you for your scripture that was written under power of the Holy Spirit, the true words that come from heaven, that instruct us in true faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you this morning for what we've learned, that a true faith is a dependent faith. We praise you that the surpassing value comes in knowing you, Lord Jesus, our Lord, and the righteousness that does not come from ourselves, that we know that, and that you would remind us, for so many of us truly are your own here this morning, that that righteousness didn't come from ourselves, and it still doesn't, that it's your righteousness that's given to us. It's the work then of the Spirit in us that causes all these things, and we give you praise and glory for that, and we look forward to the inheritance that awaits us in heavenly glory that will not fade away, that's undefiled, that's reserved there for us, and we ask that you give us the grace to persevere, and we pray all these things for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.